can't win according to his original initiative, but he can win according to his fallback position, the way he did in, in Syria and Grozny. That was the idea, we're going to destroy the country. Today, I sit down with commentator, classicist, and military historian Victor Davis Hanson. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the author of the book, The Dying Citizen. Amidst our current information war, Victor cuts through misinformation and propaganda and breaks down what he sees as happening in the Russia-Ukraine war. I think all of our listeners are so confused. So we're sanctioning Russia, but we're asking the Russians to negotiate the Iran deal. Okay. But we're not letting the North Dakotans or the Texans pump another two or three million barrels. But we're going to beg the Saudis, we're going to beg the Iranians, we're going to beg the Venezuelans to pump more. It's insane. And why are the left and corporate media so unified when it comes to Ukraine? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelik. Before we start the interview, I have a message from the sponsor of this American Thought Leaders podcast. Inflation is on the rise, and interest rates are also increasing significantly. If you want to start diversifying your hard-earned savings against inflation, you can call American Hartford Gold. They can show you how to protect your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. They'll make it easy and they are one of the highest rated firms in the country with an a rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first order. So don't wait. Call them now at 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Victor Davis Hanson, it's such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. Let's talk about the Russia-Ukraine war. There's a lot of... Uh, different information flying around. In fact, you know, the information warfare in this war is, is, is extensive. Why don't you do tell us what your sources are telling you? Well, I think part of the problem is that journalists, as in the past, have not gone out to the battle lines as they did during the Israeli wars, for example, Yugoslavia. And I think part of that is that Vladimir Putin, they're open game and they'll be killed and we've had some shots. So, there's the fog of war extends to the media. We don't really have an ad adequate picture. But that said, I think the time factor of one month in a way that of hostilities that didn't happen in Georgia, it didn't happen in eastern Ukraine, it didn't happen in the Crimea. But it did happen over an eight-month period in Grozny, Chechnya, and it did happen in Syria and Aleppo. So that suggests to us that it's Putin has underestimated the level of resistance, the level of supply from NATO countries, and particularly the United States and border, border countries on Ukraine's in their neighborhood, and more the will of the West and the efficacy of these weapons, stingers, but especially javelins and Swedish-British knockoff designs. And put all that together, and he decided that he, I think at this point, 
will not be able to absorb all of Ukraine, set up a puppet government, and then make it a border state subject to Russian influence. So what's, what's his fallback position then? I think it's to kind of divide the country from Kiev to the east and destroy it and raise the cities as we're seeing, from Maripol to Kiev, and then create a vast wilderness and say, okay, Ukraine, I can't absorb you. I don't want you. Nobody wants you now. You're destroyed. And this is a buffer zone, A, from the West and Western Ukraine and Russia. And B, it's a, it's what? It's a signal to the West, in particular former Soviet republics. If you want to break away or westernize or flirt with NATO or join the EU, you can, but we're going to destroy you. We're not going to take you over. We're not going to try to rebuild your country. You're going to end up like Kiev. I think that's what he's doing. And see, he's got to tell the Russian people that he never wanted to absorb it. He never wanted a public government. He never wanted Ukraine back. He's telling the Russian people now, this was the plan. We could not stand, we could not endure this pro-Western aggressive power next to us persecuting Russian minorities, Russian-speaking peoples within Ukraine. So we carved out slices along our borders, we protected them successfully, and then we had to preemptively destroy the country. And that, in his mind, will justify these enormous losses that could get up to 20,000 dead before we're, in the near future before we're over. And I think that's what his plan is now. And uh, I think people who said initially, and there was a lot of pundits who said he'll just decapitate the apparat in Kiev, he'll set up a puppet government, it'll be over in a week. I've heard that a lot. That's not true. And then the people said that Putin is losing, he can't win. And that's true. He, he can't win according to his original initiative, but he can win according to his fallback position the way he did in, in Syria and Grozny, and I think that's what he wants to do. And that makes it very difficult for us because you're not fighting a rational actor that wants to advance a battle line or wants to hold and protect territory or has an ambition to incorporate uh, land that is not one's own. It's more like the Nazi retreat from the Soviet Union, say, between the Battle of Kursk, mid-43, 1943 to 45, where the Nazis said, well, we don't want it. We're going to make it so bad that you're going to have to go through hell to get to Germany. And they did that as well when they went into Poland in 39. That was the idea, we're going to destroy the country. It might be difficult for people to understand why destroying the country could be an objective. And although, of course, there's been many uh, militaries that have done this in the past. Well, I think we in the West have a problem because we're rational in our way of rationality. And we look at the UN vote and we say 70% of the countries in the world object to this and condemn Russia. But look at it another way by population. Does China, 1.4 billion? Does India, 1.3 billion? Does Vietnam? Does North Korea, does Iran, do a lot of these countries condemn Russia? No. Uh, 
In fact, if you were to look at the population of the world, you could probably say that half the population or maybe 55 or 60 percent of the population of the 8 billion people on the earth either have one or two views of Russian invasion. One, they want it to succeed or two, they're indifferent to it, but they're not they're not indifferent to it enough to just say, go ahead and condemn him. They won't condemn him. They will not condemn Russia. So I think another thing is that we in the West feel that human rights and equality and dignity of the individual are the normal course of events, and they're not. Putin is gambling that people will hate him, maybe in the immediate present. They'll say they abhor his tactics, just like they abhorred Stalin's tactics. And then at the end, they'll say, my God, he took, he destroyed Ukraine right under the nose of NATO. And he taught the world a lesson and don't, he was willing to go to the nuclear brink to do it. That's what he's counting on. I'm not saying I suggest that that's rational, that I believe it. I'm just thinking that's how his mind is working. And I'm not sure yet that it's going to fail because most people, unfortunately, human nature being what it is, they're more apt to be impressed with displays of power than they are of humanity. And that's, that's where we are. And I think China is looking at this and saying, on the one hand, we thought it would be easy, and so we, we were pro-Russian, and then when the sanctions happen, this is kind of good for us because we can get oil on the cheap because they're over a barrel, and they need an outlet for their commercial uh, goods and services, and we'll provide them that at a steep price. So we'll be buying cheap <laughs> and charging them high. And once the world sees that Ukraine is absorbed very easily, like Georgia or Crimea, that's a blueprint for us in Taiwan, and now they're thinking, well, wait a minute, Putin didn't tell us it was going to take a month, and he was going to lose ten to 20,000 soldiers, so let's just wait a minute. Let's say in principle we're for it, but let's see how this works out, because in theory, maybe the Ukrainians would fight like the Taiwanese, Taiwanese could fight like the Ukrainians, and maybe we would airlift, we in the West would airlift weaponry to the Taiwanese as we did to Ukraine and maybe the world would rally around Taiwan as they have Ukraine half the world and maybe we would get sanctioned. That doesn't bother them except that to the degree to that it would make it difficult economically for China. So there now I think yes we support Russia but we don't quite support Russia content until we can find out who's going to win and uh, they may be intrigued by the idea of a Carthaginian solution of destroying, completely destroying eastern Ukraine and saying, this is what I do, because in their mind, if the Chinese had a choice between an independent Taiwan or a destroyed Taiwan that they were responsible for, they would take the destroyed Taiwan. In other words, they'd say, we own Taiwan, and we don't really care that it's been leveled. That happens. So they're looking at Ukraine in a lot of different ways. I want to talk a little bit about this uh, narrative, the Putin is a madman narrative. Before I go there, though, you did mention that, you know, 55%, let's say, of the world is, you know, ostensibly on this kind of not not supportive, at least. But really, a lot of these people, I don't know where India, it's, India wouldn't fit into this, but a lot of these people aren't actually 
they, they have their own thinking about this. They're under regimes that, that might have kind of dramatically different thinking, right? I just wanted to touch on that because it's sort of a, it feels like too quick to say a whole, you know, billions and billions of people are kind of, you know, indifferent or, or don't I care. About yeah. half, though, feel in tune with their governments. In the case of India, they were thinking this was a supplier to us throughout the Cold War with our war with Pakistan, and they can provide weaponry that's 70% as uh, as durable and effective as Western weaponry at half the cost. We don't want to alienate that arms supply. And I think a lot of other countries, like Iran, for example, think the more closer, the closer we are to Russia, the more it's an interlocutor in negotiations about the future of our proliferation projects, the more likely it might put us under the nuclear umbrella. And then Israel, if it decided to preempt, Russia could tell them in advance, if you go in and take that out, you're going to be uh, dealt with in kind. And it might be something you might not like. So all these countries are weighing the cost effectiveness of isolating Russia and maybe China along with it. And uh, there's also a, resi a residual unease with us. I think that a lot of times we just assume that people in the West, by that I mean the westernized countries of Asia, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, former British Commonwealth, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, English-speaking peoples, and of course Europe, we all represent a uninterrupted trajectory to sort of a utopia, and that the world will find that end of history narrative convincing, and I don't think they do. I think they feel that uh, and I don't agree with that. I'm just saying that they feel we butt in their affairs in Afghanistan or Iraq or in Libya or we, let, we put pride flags in Kabul or George Floyd murals in Kabul and yet we're not strong enough militarily to deserve that cultural dominance. So now what the world is saying to us well, you dominate our films, and you dominate the internet, and you tell us what is woke, and you do all this, but you don't even have the power to save Afghanistan, or Iraq, or what were you doing in Libya, or Syria, or you, you can't stop Putin from doing whatever he wants. So I think that's where the, the mood is right now worldwide. Okay, so that's definitely something we have to talk about, which is this, I guess, challenge to the... I guess the world order, U.S. The world post-war order. Right, right. That exactly. was led by the U.S., which we all hope that we can both pre preserve and adapt to changing realities. But we have to be very careful of assuming that everybody agrees with us. It doesn't mean that they're right and we're wrong. They're wrong, I think, and we're right. But we have to be more effective in the way that we communicate what we're doing. And we're not. And so I think people on the left don't realize that they can be as culturally imperialistic as people on the right who talk about, we need their oil, or, or you know, when Trump says, we didn't even take their oil from Iraq, well, people are aghast. Well, maybe they should be, but when they say to the, a traditional uh, partner, that is the anti-Taliban forces in Kabul, we're going to have a gender studies program at the University of Kabul, that can be as alienating in a different way. So we, and so in a weird way, the left has 
been culturally imperialistic, but it doesn't have the power to back it up. And there's no media that would criticize them the way that they criticize traditional imperialism. The corporate media or mainstream media messaging around this whole situation has been pretty, I don't know if the word uniform, but it's been, of course it's been very loud and very clear. And, and frankly, it's been the same machinery right, that has promoted all sorts of, you know, Trump-Russia collusion or frankly, you know, dismissed the Hunter Biden laptop as Russian disinformation, yeah. ironically, I suppose, or, or perhaps not. But it's the same machine that's basically doing this, making a lot of people, even myself, who's actually very sympathetic to the narrative in a lot of ways, skeptical. Yeah. It's funny that the left almost overnight has embraced the Ukrainian cause, but with the same methodologies that, as you said, they went after Russian collusion or the laptop or uh, dismissed the origins of the COVID virus or embraced the quarantine and the masking policies. Part of that is innate to the left. They always have to have a crusade or a crisis that would allow a suspension in civil liberties or a suspension in the give and take of democracy so they can push through an agenda that's otherwise doesn't have 51% support, whether it's green energy or critical race theory or anything like that. We know that all these issues they're pushing right now do not have, whether it's an open border or whether it's suppressing fossil fuel production. It doesn't have 51% support, but it's pushed on us in times of stress and crisis, and they always thrive on that. So this is a crisis. But second to this, and more particularly, Russia for a long time has metamorphosized in the left's mind, and this is ironic because remember Hillary in 2009 in Geneva pushed that jacuzzi button and said that Bush was basically too hard on Russia. And remember, they had been paying Hunter Biden a lot of money that the wife of the mayor of Russia did. Uh, Barack Obama had the hot mic exchange. So it's very ironic that the left, who had flirted with Putin and empowered Putin, has suddenly over this same period, especially during the Trump administration, demonized not Putin, but Russians. So we'd watch a... A Hollywood movie now, the villain is whom? It's a, it's a guy with an orthodox tattoo and he's bald head, he's big and muscular, he talks with a thick Russian accent and he's in every single, he's every single archetype, typical villain. And so they've tapped into that. They've also tapped into kind of a McCarthyite idea and by that is there's a lot of conservatives that I don't particularly agree 100% with but they make legitimate claims. All their, some of them will say, well, you're worried about the sanctity of borders, okay, but you don't worry about the sanctity of our borders. Now, I don't know where you go from that. That's where you kind of diverse. So if they say, well, then let's not support Ukraine, rather than let's support both. Let's secure our border and we can do the same thing with Ukraine and help them simultaneously. But the point that I'm making is what they say about we have to worry about us too becomes your pro-Putin. And so I, I, I've been quite amazed how all of these left-wing avenues have been calling people traitors and assets. It's not new. J John Brennan called Donald Trump a Russian treasonous actor and, and James Clapper said he was basically a, a Russian asset. So there's that's a continuation. But I think We've got to be very careful when we get into these hysterias, I mean, especially the left. 
Remember, it was the left who in World War I wanted to ban, under Woodrow Wilson's guidance, the speaking of German. And it was the left, the Attorney General of California was Earl Warren and FDR who put Japanese Americans in camps. Because remember, once the left gets going, and because it always traditionally controls the media, there is no critical voice, there's no impediment, there's no speed bump to their reification. And it's really scary. It's really scary what's happening now. And I find myself in the, in the sense that I want to help Ukraine, and a lot of conservatives say, let's create deterrence. And even though Joe Biden did not arm them in, in October and November, as people urged him, he cut back on critical armaments to them. He uh, appeased Putin. He begged Putin, please, Vladimir, point, uh, pump oil. Please, Vladimir, don't hack us. If you're going to hack us, here's 16 entities that we shouldn't be hacked. Uh, even all, given all that, once he got, went into Ukraine, you have to unite about on the principle to get him out. But the people who disagree with that point of view, they're not traitors. They have different emphases, and they're in a minority, but the left just wants to call them all of these names. And it's really amazing. It really is. Even far-left people on network news, cable news, they sound like George Patton when it comes to protecting the borders of Ukraine. I, I welcome that, but I wish they would say two million people crossing the southern border in a time of a pandemic without vaccinations, without COVID tests and with in dire need of vast amounts of material support are going to hurt the lower middle classes. They didn't say a word. It kind of strikes me when I look at how this machine, uh, I call it the megaphone in my mind at least, you know, works, it, it actually kind of feels like war propaganda. Like this is kind of the U.S. contribution to the war in a way. Yeah, it, it, it is. I wonder, you know, it, it was, were all these past efforts also kind of war propaganda? Well, we always do that. I mean, in World War II, as you know, the Soviet Union, when they divided up Poland, they butchered the NKVD, the, the, the military and secret police of the Soviet Union went in and murdered 22,000 Polish officers. And that was a fact. And the Germans then, when they uncovered the graves, they tried to publicize that. And in the United States, FDR went around and squashed Polish-American radio stations from beaming the truth because he thought it would hurt the war effort. So we were perfectly fine. We didn't find out the actual perpetrators in the common culture until the 1960s. So that's what we do. We get into propaganda. And how that relates to Ukraine is that we have, uh, oh, there's a mystical... Ukrainian pilot who's shooting down everybody that it's a complete myth or uh, we interview one person who says you know these incredible stories of heroism or there's going to be a counterattack and so we're getting a one-sided view and so what we have to do as supporters of Ukraine Americans have to step back and say what is going on how do we help Ukraine survive how do we get the Russians out? But also, how do we do all that in the context of two directives? Stop this slaughter of Ukrainian civilians and not escalate to a World War III scenario. And a lot of people who are just quite enthusiastic about going into Ukraine never ask themselves, how much? Do, how long do we want to fight? We fight to the last Ukrainian, 
because the Ukrainians, well, you've noticed they always say that they're fighting to get leverage in negotiations. And we say, you can't, you can't negotiate with Putin. Well, you probably can't, but you can see where the negotiations would go. Ukraine would say, I don't want to be part of NATO, never did. Okay, you, you win that one, Vladimir. And those borderlands are kind of a mistake anyway. It was a the Russian-speaking majority. If you want them, we can't control them. And we have to have Ukraine, uh, Crimea, you have to have Crimea. Maybe we'll make it a demilitarized zone and have the UN have a plebiscite like they did in the Sarlam report. Something like that. And then what do we get out of it for all the deaths and destruction? Maybe we won't have you pay reparations. And what do you get out of it? And you go back and tell everybody, you, you, you hurt us. And then let's just stop. And a lot of people in America say, well, that wouldn't be good because Putin then got rewarded for his invasion. He has to pay. Okay, he has to pay, but he's going to pay with the blood of Ukrainians. So if you really want Putin out of Ukraine and you really want him to suffer a humiliating loss, then what are you going to do to sacrifice for that? Besides seeing women and children blown apart, I think the answer is, if you want to assassinate Putin, then think about it. If you want to send warthogs in, think about it. If you want to swap planes so there is uh, early model MiGs in there, think about it. If you want to send 90-person, 100-person Patriot batteries into there, think about it. And by think about it, I mean, what would you do if you were Putin if we do that after we're already sanctioning him? And then when he escalates, then you escalate. That's where you want to go. But they don't think of that. So they get on, you know, they get on television and say, we're going to assassinate him. Okay, what if they said, we're going to assassinate our president? But they never, they never, they never game it out to the next step. And of course, I think 90% of what Putin says about when his subordinates mention chemical weapons or he talks about nuclear weapons, it's bluff and it's nuclear poker. And it's an advantage in nuclear poker, as we know, with Trump and North Korea to sound crazy and unpredictable. That was, a, that was a ruse that Trump used as well. But we're not sure about the other 10%. And that's scary because if you're not sure in a game of nuclear poker where there's stakes of annihilation, you don't have near certainty, it's very dangerous. And so I would give him an avenue where the Western world realizes he's defeated and he blew it and he's humiliated, but I would have an avenue for him to go back rather than try to destroy all every Russian. The other thing, finally, very quickly, is when CNN or MSNBC or any of the networks say, Russians, if you've seen these reporters, they have a big smile on them. If there's, a, there's a report that dogs are eating Russian soldiers dead, that they can't even get their, and then they get a general on, and he says, well, you know, throughout military history, any time an army leaves their dead on the field of battle, that's a de facto admission that they're defeated. But we're talking about human beings that are 18 years old. They don't even, some of the Russian conscripts didn't even know where they were going to go until they were ordered in. They didn't even know where Kiev was. And so they get in there and then they're blown up or wounded and they're rotting out there and a dog eats them and we're supposed to be happy about that? This is coming from the left. So it's, uh, it's a very bizarre thing. So let's tackle it directly this the vladimir putin is a madman narrative yeah that's I, I keep hearing it yes. what are your thoughts on this 
Vladimir Putin is not a madman. He's an irredentist. He's a Mussolini in 1930s. He's a, he's a Hitler all through the late 30s. He's uh, a Greek rational right-winger in 1920 who wanted to go to Izmir and create the Byzantine Empire. He's Mr. Milosevic in the 90s that wants a greater Serbia. Take Montenegro, take uh, Bosnia, take Herzegovina, and uh, add them all up, and you've got greater Serbia. So he looks at 240 million people in the Soviet Union, 35% more territory, and he says, we were on the world stage. China wasn't, we were. India wasn't, we were. And now we have 140 million people. We've lost 30% of our territory. We have the Ukrainians, the jewel in the Soviet crown. This is where our nuclear munitions were. This is where some of our great shipyards were. This, is, this was where we, we lost 120,000 men in the siege of Sevastopol, uh, resisting von Manstein and Army Group South. This was where Bobby R was, where 30,000 Jews were butchered, uh, Ukrainian Jews. So in his way of thinking, I'm going to reclaim all of this territory. And I made a good start with Georgia. I showed the world you can do it. I made a good start with Eastern Ukraine. It was cheap. I did a good start with Crimea. And he's thinking, this is my plan. But what he's not thinking is, there were conditions that were unique to each of those prior acquisitions. The price of oil always has to be high, and Europe needs oil, and the leadership is either weak in the United States or bogged down. George Bush was bogged down in Afghanistan and Iraq. Barack Obama was weak, hot mic, dismantled missile defense in Eastern Europe, and Joe Biden, no need to comment. And the price of oil is high, and NATO is in dis disarray. So when he went in there, NATO wouldn't even send Javelin missiles. They are not meeting their 2%. Uh, it's a mess. And so when you have those, those stars line up, he goes in and to create this greater Russian empire again. And it's an opportunistic uh, element, a gambit, because he doesn't have the wherewithal. His economy is smaller than South Korea's. He doesn't have a great army like everybody said he did. He doesn't have great weapons like everybody said he did. He's got two things going for him. He's got a hell of a lot of oil, and he's got 7,000 nukes. And he's punching above his weight. So that's what he wants, and I think he can usually get what he wants because people, I mean, they want oil and they're afraid of nuclear weapon. Well, and he also has, you know, what I call best-in-class disinformation. Yes. Like, and that's, and that's, I mean... But even there, though, best-in-class information, I think the Chinese outdo him. Okay. Because, put it this way, I'll give you the one example. Take Hollywood that marks its, its movies all around the world. If he's so clever at propaganda, why are Russians the butt of every joke in every Hollywood movie? They are the evil people. Contrast China. China says to Hollywood, you know, this, this actor is too dark-skinned. This actor is from a minority that won't sell well in China. So we don't want them in the A-list. And what does liberal Hollywood say? Okay, fine. We know that's a fact. They censor the selection of authors based on Chinese dictates. There's a lot of Russians that are seven feet tall, more Russians than China. Why aren't there all these Russian athletes in the NBA? Why isn't 
Putin able to use the NBA the way the Chinese are? You can't get a LeBron, a LeBron James or Steve Kerr to say one negative thing about China, the Uyghurs, because they're, it's a $5 billion market. And more importantly, it's not just that there's 1.4 billion Chinese and they're the second largest economy in the world. They're absolute students of American popular culture. And by that I mean there's not 360,000 Russian students here. When you look at Russian t Russia today, I mean, they get, they get Tucker Carlson interviewing a guest and they take selective quotes that I think are unfair to Tucker. That's another question. I do think that. And then they say, Tucker Carlson is for us. Nobody believes that. When you look at China's propaganda, especially about the origins of COVID, their na narrative was, once again, the United States is practicing systemic racism and it's classes, classic uh, anti-Asian, just like during the yellow peril of the 19th century, and they are discriminating against Asian. This is coming from a country that put blacks the first week of the COVID outbreak, kicked them out of restaurants, put them away, said that they were under suspect, they were subject to mandatory testing, and has over a million Wagers in camps. So they're so much more sophisticated students of our culture. And uh, I, when I get a call writing something controversial in the past from a Chinese consulate official, it's very sophisticated. It's very valley girl. It's very, uh, hey, I'm just one of you guys, man. Hey, what's up? Why do you support the criminal government in Japan? Man, we're all on the same team. We fought together in World War II. When you talk to somebody from Russia today, it's just transparently ineffective. Well, so frankly, I feel a little schooled here by you <laughs> because I think I have to agree. I have to agree with you. Well, let, let's actually talk about China, yes. right? And what role China, I keep seeing the narrative China's on the fence. It doesn't seem to me like China's well, on the fence Well, on the here. fence, uh, let's be clear, they want Russia to win. And they want Russia to establish the precedent that a strong nation can have an irredentist agenda, fancy Italian word for taking back territory that has similar attributes to the motherland and reclaiming a myst mystical empire. So they're saying, look world, there's Russia, Russians in Ukraine, it was part of Russia, it needs to go back. And that's why they did it. So look at Taiwan, it needs to go back. And why have all the violence when we could just do it peacefully and you wouldn't have to go through this? That's their narrative. Privately, they're thinking, as the Communist Party always does, what is in it for us in the most amoral, profitable terms? And wow, Russia is now the, the largest producer of oil in the world. We need a lot of oil and they have nowhere to sell it. And they need, as I said earlier, they need access to markets and a domestic consumptive uh, class. So we'll, <laughs> if the price of oil is $110, we'll buy some for 90 And we'll charge them all sorts of surtaxes to bring out, to be able to have access for their exports via China. And that's what they're interested in. And let's hope, and then they think, you know, if, if they lose and they're humiliated, we can deplore the violence that, that transpired. But if they win, we can say, see what happens when you deny a mother country their lawful rights to readopt their, their progeny.
And that's what they're doing. Uh, it's incumbent upon us in the West to make Vladimir Putin not re achieve his objectives, but as I said, not at the expense of the Ukrainian people. It's their country. So if Zelensky it's, tomorrow wakes up under pressure from people and say, we're being slaughtered, a quarter of us have nowhere to eat, we have no shelter, it's still a very cold spring, then we don't say, oh, no, 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 Zelensky, you're fighting for the world. You said you were fighting for the world. So that's Putin's. That's one of the major players. That's what he's thinking, and um, we'll see how it works out. I want to jump back to Zelensky because yeah. he's, of course, being lionized in the press and he so is. forth. And at the same time, you know, he seems to be leading a country in a very difficult situation. Um, before we go there, just one one last thing on China. Um, what is China going to do next in this sort of situation? I mean, they're just going to play it out. Yeah, I think they're going to play it out. They're going to sit tight. They're going to buy a lot of Russian oil. They're going to try to violate the sanctions or the embargo or the boycott. They're going to buy in exchange a lot of Russian wheat and natural resources. They're going to sell Russia a lot of stuff. They're going to have a full-fledged, enhanced uh, commercial relationship. They'll probably uh, have an milita increased military relationship. And they're going to sit there and see who wins. And they hope Russia wins. But if Russia falters and leaves with a tail between their legs and the sanctions demonstrate that if you challenge the Western financial system, you pay an enormous price. And then they look at their assets vis-a-vis -vis the Russians and say, well, we're the second biggest economy, of course. We have all these advantages that Russia has, but we don't have 7,000 nukes. We might have two or three hundred of them, and the United States and the West is scrambling to enhance missile defense. So they're going to they just say, now is not the time to press it. Mm. And so that's what they're, they're looking at. They don't know who's going to win yet. Well, and, you know, one of the commentaries I've seen from uh, Indian pundits, for example, is, you know, there's this whole situation on the border of Kashmir, which we don't talk about often. I think there's something like 200,000 Chinese troops deployed there. And, uh, you know, where the West hasn't been like terribly supportive to our sort of this Chinese encroachment on India. Maybe it's, it's Russia that we need to be, you know, friendlier towards, you know, what, what well, do you it's make traditional of that? And this is kind of a hackneyed thing to say, but Henry Kissinger established and conservatives got very angry about him. He established this principle that you wanted China to be no friendlier to Russia than to us, and Russia to be no friendlier to China than to us, or vis-a-vis -vis China had to hate uh, Russia just as much as it hated us, and Russia had to hate China just as much as, and in that triangulation, each party could check the powers of others, and because we were, we had our sphere of influence in Europe and North America and South America, really we were the advantageous party and we wanted to play them off against each other. But with Russian collusion and this demonization of Russia, we, we lost that card. And so we had no major power other than India to play off against China. And India just thought, <laughs> privately they thought, well, 
we agree with you, but you didn't really show much in Syria or Libya or Iraq or Afghanistan. And you lecture everybody. You've lectured our conservative government about all of these utopian bromides, and we get weapons from Russia. So we're just going to kind of stay out of it. We they're more concerned put it this way about China. If we had spirited muscular leadership in the United States, if we had a deterrent. Uh, military force, if we were not woke, if we were spending money in the Pentagon on viable, practical weapons rather than uh, $200 million airplanes, and we had this huge social cost, if we were doing all the right things, then right now as we're speaking, India and Russia and the United States would have a loose understanding of spheres of influence. It doesn't mean you can go into Ukraine. But we would understand that our common enemy, the world's common enemy, is China. But that's that's been destroyed by Russian collusion and everything else that's transpired the last five years. And given, you know, I think you probably agree, or you can tell me or not, that China is the real paramount strategic threat to the U.S. You know. Yeah, I mean, when people say China is the real threat and not Russia. I always think to myself, because it, maybe it's because I was a classicist about grammar and syntax or logic. Okay, let's quantify that. So here is the Belt and Road where China has the major harbors of Europe, whether it's Naples or the Piraeus or going into Rotterdam, where they build the infrastructures and they have their ships going in and out. They control the Panama. What does Russia have as a counterpart? Nothing. Here's the Chinese population of 1.4 billion. Here's 140 million. Here's the second largest economy with the highest rate of growth. Here's a morbid economy. And you can keep going that way. And it all turns out that China, in terms of power and leverage and influence, it's like a magnitude of 10 to 1 with Russia. And so, yeah, we have to find a way that, and to check Chinese power. And it used to be that the Russians were just as suspicious of the Chinese as they were of us. They still are. They have a border with China. We don't. But uh, we've lost that ability. And part of it is, I don't want to blame us entirely, part of it is Vladimir Putin. Because all of his aims in Ukraine could have been negotiated. I think if he'd sat down, we would have probably said NATO's not going to be incorporating Ukraine into its alliance. There'd be no purpose to it. And we would probably say, we understand that you have spheres of influence among 90% or 80% Russian-speaking people on your border, and we don't want to provoke you. But that's ancient history now. Okay, so let's talk about... Uh, Zelensky. Zelensky, precisely. The yes. other piece of it is Zelensky's also been, um, you know, sort of engage, engaging with the West, in a, right? And this is what some of these uh, narratives that are um, both popular and uh, Russia, or I guess, you know, coming out of Russia and also popular among some Americans, that there's, you know, there's a lot of corruption in Ukraine, uh, that there's, a, you know, there's kind of strange relationship with the, between the U.S. elite class and Ukraine. I mean, it was, a lot of it is actually documented, you know, yeah. it's not. And then and at the same time, you have Zelensky, you know, stepping up and being, uh, you know, I, I don't think you could even argue a pretty yeah, solid he's leader. A, he's been absolutely brilliant because he starts out with a lot of negatives and that is 
Donald Trump would not have been impeached if it wasn't for Alexander Vindman, a Ukrainian-American. And I'm not going to suggest that his interests with, with Ukraine, that would be very um, McCarthy-eyed of me. But what I'm saying is when he heard a phone call, he had a particular point of view about Ukraine and the United States. It turned out to be wrong because Trump was much better for Ukraine than Biden was or Obama was. But nevertheless, he called the so-called whistleblower and that inaugurated uh, the impeachment. If he was a disinterested player and was perceived like that, then the Ukraine would not have reportedly offered him one, two, three times that he minister of defense, which he kind of smiled and winked and nodded at. Or the Ukrainian ambassador in 2016 would have not written an op-ed suggesting that people would be much wiser to vote for, for Hillary Clinton. Or there wouldn't be Ukrainian residents that were key players or advisors in the Steele dossier and the Russian collusion hoax. So he starts with the idea that people did not like Ukraine interfering in our politics and they did not like the Biden family incorporated firing Ukrainian state prosecutors, reaping untold millions off a pretty impoverished population, and engineering a coup of a Russian puppet and bringing in Porchenko and others. So there was this interaction, interference that was way beyond the norms. So just Maidan, just to be clear, Maidan was, uh, you know, supported by the, you know, the Obama administration, not necessarily the, you know, the Biden family yes. specifically, right? But, but yeah. what I'm getting at is yeah. when Biden was vice president, he was selling to the Ukrainians his influence via his son, Hunter. Hunter had no market value at all. He was, in fact, he had zero market, negative market value. But once he said, I have the ear of my dad, and my dad can get you weapons or aid, then they gave Hunter money. And that was clear. And Biden, when he had that Council on Foreign Relations brag that I got him fired, you know, Zulkin. So my point is that there was this interaction. So there was not goodwill between our countries. And we had the whole Victoria Newland story and all of that, that we were trying to affect the outcome of the Ukrainian government. So they invade. And to be frank, Zelensky did not tour all of NATO and all of the United States to build up a deposit of stingers and javelins so that when the war broke out, he had not five or six hundred, but ten thousand. He didn't do that. He kept saying, they're not going to invade, don't worry, don't aggravate them. Okay, that was a mistake. Once the war started, he got in that olive fatigue t-shirt and he speaks very good English and he's very casual. And so you had these two contrasting images. You had this pale, steroid inflated looking Vladimir Putin who's puffy hidden out in some Fuhrer bunker with toadies. And then you had this man going all over Kiev in the front rank so you could hear bombs or the sound of fire in the background. And he looked like an American teenager, rough beard going on. And that was very appealing to Western audiences. He was multilingual. He could talk, speak Ukrainian. He could speak Russian. Some people suggest some European languages and English. And so he, he took a lot of disadvantages and he won um, enormous Western support for Ukraine. And that was reified 
with this supply line through four NATO countries. So they are pouring just a staggering amount of very expensive weaponry. I mean, Donald Trump being the businessman, remember what his complaint was about javelins, wasn't giving them. Biden, uh, when he took office and Obama were worried about the repercussions of arming them with offensive weapons. Trump was just worried about the cost. They're $200,000 for the launcher and 100000 almost for the, for the missile. But he, or he would have given even more. But my point is they've got some of the most expensive, sophisticated weapons in the world. And it's pouring in along with humanitarian aid. And that's all due to Zelensky's uh, public relations genius. Where I think he's got to be careful. There's a thin line between badgering the West to do more and showing unqualified gratitude for what they've done. And it's sometimes when he, this stream of weapons comes in and Europe is cut off from Russian oil and we're sanctioning it and the world price goes a little higher every week or so. And he says to his Western benefactors, where is the no-fly zone? And we say in the United States, well, you want us to take F-16s or F-22s and go over there? And Mr. Zelensky, there has never been one no-fly zone in world history where one nuclear power told another nuclear power, you can't fly here. They're always asymmetrical. We tell Milosevic, we tell Saddam Hussein, we tell the Taliban, we don't tell Russia or China you can't fly here because they're nuclear powers. And so that's a new and don't tell us what to do because if we do that we don't know what the consequences will be. Or when he says we need warthogs, uh, we don't know what the consequences will be to send A-10 American aircraft into Ukraine. Or we don't know what the consequences will be to say, well, we're not really sending F-15s or F-16s, we're sending them to Poland, that frees up, and you've got to make that critical distinction, Mr. Putin. So he's always asking for escalation. And I understand why he's doing it, and I empathize, but he's got to be very careful because he'll turn off. When you ask the American people, do you think we should have a no-fly zone? Yes, we should. Next question. Do you think we should have a no-fly zone if we confront nuclear Russia in the air? No, we don't. Second corollary. The other thing is when you see, and I'll just finish very quickly, when you see his attitude toward Israel. So Israel comes out and says, we voted to condemn the Russian invasion. And then Zelensky says last weekend, I'm Jewish. I'm empathetic to the Jewish state, but you did not sanction Russia. And how dare you, given our history, we, we understand that Ukrainians helped the Jews when Germany invaded on June 22, 1941. Stop. Mr. Zelensky, you're <laughs> very selective. Historically, there was uh, at least a few hundred Ukrainians at Baba Yar uh, helping with the murder of 30,000 Jews. And you could argue that the Ukrainian National Police, as a autonomous group that sprung up to aid Hitler, was uh, outsourced task of rounding up Jews, 500,000 of which you... So that was one thing. Second is that all through the last 
10 years, it seems like when there's a critical vote to condemn the United Nations, Ukraine, I mean, in the United Nations to condemn Israel, <laughs> Ukraine is always voting against Israel, sometimes on the prompt of the Obama administration, but they are. And so when Israel looks at this, you are a rock star, we agree, we've voted to condemn, but we're not going to stop the sanctions because we're not comfortable with some of your history, ancient and modern. And number two, we're being attacked all the time from Syria with terrorist enclaves that, that's produced terrorists and missiles. And Russia controls the airspace now of Syria. And we are terrified that Iran is going to get a bomb under this bankrupt idea of a new 2.0 Iran deal. And Russia is the interlocutor. Think of that. How crazy is that? We're, con we're supposed to hate the very shadow of, of Vladimir Putin. And then this Biden administration turns around and said, we trust him so much, he's going to negotiate the deal for us. So then the Israelis are saying things like, hmm, we tell Russians they're so evil that they can't trade in Israel, but then we're going to turn around and say, don't let Hezbollah sh shoot a missile at us or let us come in and take out a terrorist base or... Uh, we're going to preempt and take out that Iranian nuclear plant, and you're just going to sit there and do nothing. And I think more likely Russia will say to the Israelis, okay, you want to sanction us for oil? Then maybe Iran is under our nuclear umbrella. How do you like that? So mm -hmm. if you go in there, we will consider that an attack on Russia. So that's what, what I'm getting at is Zelensky doesn't understand that empathy and affinity and support for Ukraine is not, 100% synonymous with national interest. 330 million Americans, our prime directive is to live another day, not that necessarily Ukraine lives another day. If we get to the point where to save Ukraine by getting Putin out and that triggers a nuclear war, then people will not support that. So what I'm getting at again is Zelensky's got to be more subtle. He's got to say, I know you're saying somebody's going to listen to this. Oh, yeah, it's easy for you to say, Victor, but you're not bombing your farm to smithereen. I know that. But he can say is, you and the world have done so much for us. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for this support. We were all belated. We were all tardy. We were all uh, serious about the Russian threat. Now we're not. And I know there are certain limitations I, I, I have to to abide by when I ask you for full support, but just do what you can. It's so much appreciated. He'd be so much more effective than to, to hector Western governments that they owe him uh, a threshold that could turn nuclear really quickly. Coming up in part two, from war propaganda to biolabs, to talk of ultra right-wing battalions in Ukraine, what's really going on? There's some pretty odious figures coming into this war. And while everyone is talking about a no-fly zone, many haven't noticed that Turkey, a NATO member, has imposed what's essentially a no-float zone, blocking Russian warship access to the Black Sea. Is this a World War III moment? We have to have leaders who say, you know what, we don't have to be perfect to be good, and we just need to be better than all the alternatives. We live in an age of censorship and disinformation where some of the most prominent voices, most important voices, aren't actually being heard because they're being suppressed. I invite some of these people onto the show, onto American thought leaders. 
So to stay up to date on the most recent episodes and our exclusive content, you can actually sign up for our newsletter at theepochtimes.com newsletter. Just hit the checkbox for American Thought Leaders.